नमस्ते सो एज पार्ट ऑफ द सीरीज ऑन राइटिंग्स ऑफ शिवरबिंदो वी टेक अप टुडे कलेक्टेड वर्क्स ऑफ शिवरबिंदो वॉल्यूम ट्वेंटी विच इज टाइटल्ड एज द रिनाइसा इन इंडिया दिस वॉल्यूम वॉज टाइटल्ड इन एस ए बी सी एल दैट इज शिवरबिंदो बर्थ सेंटनरी लाइब्रेरी एज द फाउंडेशंस ऑफ इंडियन कल्चर now the present volume editors which is 1993 edition uh, somehow thought that you know they should have this title the logic was that the foundation of indian culture was never really given as a title by shirbindo uh, nevertheless the book was published in 1953 and was blessed by the mother in 1972 so i do not know uh, how this logic holds but it's okay it's equally a valid title because the uh, first series of essays a series of 32 essays and they basically appeared in the arya uh, from 1918 to 1921 and these series can be put into four main uh, four main headings one is the renaissance in india which is of course a series of essays then indian culture and external influence very relevant and valid is india civilized and the fourth is a defense of indian culture now this of course a very uh, provocative title is india civilized so it's put in inverted commas because it's not what uh, it's not a title given by shirbindo but it was a uh, retort or a, a kind of reply response to someone by the name of mr william archer so all these three uh, all these four s uh, series have been written in response to someone or the other but that is only a starting point and the rest is of course shobindo elaborates uh, in his inimical style um, and divine style and the beauty is as always if we read these essays today it will look like shobindo is writing today or maybe tomorrow <laughs> that is the beauty <laughs> because they sound so contemporary and when i read it uh um, i i have wondered that you know was this happening really during the times when shirbindo wrote or is it like he was into too much into the future and was writing for today so it's uh, for each one to you know look into it and decide but just a little background before we enter into the writings so the first one the renaissance in india is based on a response to a book by mr james cousins so james cousins was an irish man and he uh, he was and not only an india lover he actually ended up uh, you know he was a christian by birth but he took up hinduism toward the later part of his life and even changed his name to jairam jairam is one of his names and eventually died in india so he was very not only sympathetic to india but he felt that um, you know just like there is a renaissance all over so there should be a renaissance in india but he felt does india really need a renaissance so shubindo starts from there because he says india has always been there and this was a kind of talk going around during that time the buzz that well india needs a renaissance this was the thought that certain european critics were pouring upon you know indian thought mentality life forms they couldn't understand say they compared this whole process to what happened in europe at some point of time where the celtic and the other greco roman uh, you know ways of life were completely abandoned and there was a renaissance which was carried out primarily by a rationalistic approach towards life so renaissance meant there in that context that well these forms have become meaningless and uh, let's remove them and just have the new rationalistic order so this rational society was regarded as so called enlightenment and it had a sprinkling of christianity added to it so it was more like basically a rational order where you accept the only religious form that was available and accessible to it was more like a side dish that okay fine we also have something which can be called as religion um, to add so because otherwise it seems incomplete so this is how the renaissance took place so james cousin very uh, rightly says that does india really need a renaissance because india of the ages has never been dead that's what shirbindo also says and shirbindo also takes it up from there that does do we really need a renaissance 
But Sherbinda says, yes, we need, but we must, the renaissance of India must be of the forms, not of the spirit, because spirit is already there. And this spirit needs to clothe itself in new forms. So he gives to the Indian renaissance a new meaning altogether. Because to say that we don't need a renaissance at all is as good as saying that, well, everything is just perfect. So precisely because India had done this, therefore it started stagnating. Because at one point it stopped evolving. Because, you know, we we took Shankara, Madhava and all these great luminary figures as the ultimate. So the critical mind, the, the creativity, the original thinking in art, poetry, music, uh, stopped at a point of time and that's when the whole decline started so he says new forms have to be created the spirit moves forward but the base doesn't need a renaissance it needs to be rediscovered uh, by the you know indians and that indian spirit has to once again spring back upon life and create new forms so this was the basic uh, logic and he you know through the pages as we go we'll see how beautifully he presents it then, of course, Indian culture and external influence, we know that sounds very much contemporary. Looks like two years back or maybe one year back, Shabita is writing this essay. And then there is another interesting series of essays, uh, Is India Civilized? So this was, uh, now, there was a book by another Englishman, William Archer. So he was a friend of George Bernard Shaw. So this fellow was uh, through and through so-called rationalistic, critical, positivist. He thought that he is a uh, great analytical thinker. And on that basis, he rubbished the entire Indian civilization. He said, it's nothing. It's just a mass of superstitions, bundle, what we today speak of as the liberal thought. So, but even in terms of reason, it was very poor. Actually, if you read through the book, it's so clear that he didn't really understand. Even his reasoning is very faulty. Leave aside the criticism and understanding and being in sympathy with Indian culture. So, because of this book, there was another Englishman. So, we have one Irishman. Then we have one Briton. Uh, or rather, he was a Scot. You know, this fellow, uh, William Archer. And then, there was another Englishman by the name of Woodroffe, who has written wonderful books on Tantra, but uh, he wrote it under the pseudonym Arthur Avalon. So this name has a very interesting history. So Avalon is in Celtic uh, cult. You have these nine goddesses like the incarnations of Vishnu. You have the nine, like Dash Mahavidyas in the Upanishads and the Tantra. So um, this uh, great mystic teaching was lost as we know, you know, that Irish and the Druids, all these were, there was wonderful things happening, but it came to an abrupt halt under the thing of Renaissance. So this man, uh, Arthur Avalon, uh, John Woodroffe, had a very interesting history, how he took to Tantra. He took to Tantra, but uh, before that, like any other good human being, he was not a critic of India. He loved India, but nothing deep into it. And he became an advocate, then he rose to the uh, you know, position at one point of time as the Chief Justice of Calcutta High Court. So, once he was giving a judgment uh, or hearing a case, and he suddenly realized that his mind is getting clouded. He's just not able to focus on anything. So, he got pretty confused that why is he not able to focus? So, he uh, shared this inability to focus with someone present by his side. He said, you know, somehow I am not able to focus. My whole mind seems very cloudy. He said, yes, because outside there is a sadhu who is a tantric and this fellow whose things you are examining, he has called this tantric and the tantric is doing a puja which is clouding your mind. So he didn't believe it. He went out. He actually saw the sadhu. <laughs> he asked the sadhu to be thrown away from there. And the moment the sadhu was sent away, he found that the entire clarity had returned. You see the association and company and its effect. Now, of course, this was a special puja which was being done. When he experienced it, he said, my God, there is something which I don't know. This is something so powerful because he had a direct experience. You remember how Shurabindo, when he saw the Naga Sanyasi, cross the water and it was given to his uh, 
brother Barin and he recovered from a mountain fever. So then this thought came very clearly that there is something which I don't know and I must explore. That is how he went into the details of Tantra and himself practiced Tantra under a guru very assiduously, so much so that when he used to lie down on the bed and do this Sanskrit chanting, his guru said, you can't do it, you will lose the capacity to utter Sanskrit in the proper way if you lie on a very cushioned bed. So he started lying on the floor on a mat to practice Sanskrit. And his Sanskrit, both spoken and written, became so good that even people who were natives, means Indians, he could give a lesson or two to them. So this man took it upon himself to respond to William Archer. And he wrote a book, you know, showing the stripping off all the aspects of William Archer's so-called logic. But then, Shubindu saw that book and he said there is a need to write more. So, basically the second part is on two aspects. One is William Archer, he is responding to him, basically. But he is saying some things which obviously uh, were missed by Arthur Avalon. So, this is the whole background of this book. And what we have is, uh, you know, wonderful roughly 400 pages and beautiful illustrations of some of the ancient temple architecture. I wish they had also given some, of course the illustrations are by um, the publishers, but I wish they had also given some ancient text because it would have added to the charm and beauty of this. So whatever temple or architecture that Shurabindu has mentioned, they have put it as a picture, some of them. And below it, there is a passage or a little bit of passage which you've been spoken about it. Sometimes, of course, it's um, not fully accurate because when you pick up a passage randomly, there is something Shubhinda has written before it and something Shubhinda has written after it. So when you see some of these uh, pictures and passages, <laughs> it's always best to go back to the entire content that Shubhinda writes. So, he starts with this book of the Renaissance in India, which is a series of essays with, uh, with this particular question that is a Renaissance really needed? And when Shubhidu speaks about that, what he is seeing, it seems that this Renaissance is going to take place regardless of anyone. Because he starts, like in our Puranas, we have the whole story starting from the decision taken far, far above for creation. So look at how he speaks of it. On the whole, what we see is a giant Shakti who, awakening into a new world, a new and alien environment, finds herself shackled in all her limbs by a multitude of gross or minute bonds the giant Shakti is about India and it reminds us of you know, Swami Vivekananda's vision where he sees India bound and shackled in one of his visions and he has the wish to free her from the bonds and suddenly she appears in a golden resplendent form and says, do you think that anybody can bind me? It's of my own choice that I have adopted it and of my own choice I will throw it away. So something very similar, Shurabindo sees what he has seen, he doesn't write that, surely he must have seen much more than what is expressed. But look at the way he expresses it. Bonds self-woven by her past. Look at it, that she herself had woven those bonds around her. Shubhinda brings that out, uh, out uh, again and again, that this impact that took place of the British culture, what was its necessity and uh, how it has does something in Indian spirit will, will, which will take it to a, another level of self-rejuvenation. He doesn't say that about the Mughal invasion. And the reason is very obvious. Because Mughal invasion was brutal, cruel and all kinds of things happened. But the core belief that there is a divine element, you have to believe, you have to have faith. He speaks about the zealot of the Mohammedan and you have to do things in the service of God, in the name of God. 
there were those similarities which were completely lost in the outer forms and obviously the political ambitions of the kings but with the british culture something new came it was something which india had lost it had it but it had lost it over a period of time and that was critical thinking the ability to analyze to rationalize so that began to awaken and people started reassessing who they were because it's like we take ourselves for granted all of us i'm sure had this experience sometime or the other one of my experiences was when i traveled abroad and i saw that you know when people were um, being taken for uh, security check those days long long back 22 25 years back so suddenly they were uh, segregating certain people for a special check special check means body scan and all that so that time body scan had not yet come the x ray scan but uh, you know thoroughly check so i was noticing that who are the people who are singled out is it random or there is a plan in it so i saw that basically the browns were mainly the ones who were put aside so i just made an observation then i asked my friend later on that why is it so he said no because asiatics so first time i heard the word asiatics i was referred to as asiatic it was not really indian so i suddenly discovered a larger identity with which i am connected i am an asiatic that's a european so uh, you know when you come in contact with that then you start rediscovering yourself before going there i am an indian very strongly indian i discovered that i have another level of identity which is asiatic so when you come in contact with something as alien as the western civilization in its current um, last 300 400 years it invites you to question yourself so shubhendra says it's perfectly fine if people level criticism it should be a means for rediscovering ourselves and not simply going into a shell of you know blind defense of forms so that's how the need of a renaissance and we see this even in bankim chand's novel anand mat shubhendra refers to that not here but elsewhere so we see that after the mughals uh, you know they were fighting the these um, sanyasis they were fighting against the uh, mughal rule and at toward the end they see that the british guns come and the mughals are going away but they suddenly see that while mughals are going away they are occupied now by completely a different kind of a culture which they can't even understand head or tail of it <laughs> muslim was easier to understand <laughs> there but this is completely different so it was such a different shock for them and then their leader who is a guru he says no no this is required this is the need of the moment and they will rule for some time and then they will go so here he reminds us that she had chosen upon herself bonds recently imposed from outside so there are bonds which are of the past why they have become bonds because when we don't change then things begin to become the same thing which were beautiful they tend to become a bondage and then bonds recently imposed from outside and is struggling to be free from them to arise and proclaim herself to cast abroad her spirit and set her seal on the world looks like last two years shubhendra is speaking of i mean 10 years 15 years back you won't have even imagined that you know what does it mean even to us it would have been very difficult to understand so we hear on every side a sound of the slow fraying of bonds does it sound contextual every side is slow fraying of the bonds here and there is sharp tearing and snapping but freedom of movement has not yet been attained the eyes are not yet clear the bud of the soul has only partly opened the titaness has not yet arisen see how beautifully you know titaness the shakti that is going to work here the titaness is not some uh, something dark it is one whom the you know even the gods worship the kali who is going to awaken in india and start her dance and then shubhendra starts step by step and he takes this um, this aspect 
that yes, if you say renaissance in the European sense, it is not needed, and that's not how Indian renaissance will take sense. So what Europe did, it it completely broke off the past, not only the form but also the spirit, and it suddenly started building a society on the basis of reason. So he says there are um, cultures, there are you know countries which have been Europeanized in this way, losing their spirit. And one such example is Japan. And several places we see, you know, both Shurabinda and the mother, they were not happy about this, that Japan lost its real inner spirit. Now there is a attempt, actually all over the world, the nationalistic spirit has come up because people are trying to rediscover what their past is. So Japan lost that and went along the way of just developing along the western lines. Because Japan is primarily about aesthetics. It lives in that fine vital emotions and it can easily build that up. I mean, replacing it, all that it needs is transfer it onto a Europeanized, uh, mechanized society. And it did it. He says, but that cannot be in India. Even if India were to try, it is impossible. Because India primarily lives in the spirit. And therefore, any renaissance has to keep into mind that backbone, that cornerstone, that foundation of Indian life, which he says is spirituality. Spirituality is indeed the master key of the Indian mind. The sense of the infinite is native to it. India saw from the beginning and even in her ages of reason and her ages of increasing ignorance, she never lost hold of the inside. That life cannot be rightly seen in the soul light, cannot be perfectly lived in the soul power of its externalities. And then Shurabindo very beautifully com- compares the European outlook with the Indian outlook. Here he speaks of two very different ways. Of course, Asiatic outlook, but then uh, as someone has rightly said, that basically when you speak about the Asiatic outlook, you are primarily in today's time referring to India. Because rest of Asia has gone here, there, everywhere. And um, primarily, you know, it is still aping, gone. Look at China, you know. Aping completely the Western model and bringing to it, in it, this communist kind of Marxist ideology. And it's ruined itself. Otherwise, China was another great civilization in the way past. So, uh, he brings brings out that what is the European way of... uh, Creating a, a symmetry and a harmony, this need for harmony of mind, body and something beyond is there in every human being. So what they do is they do it by limiting things. So what is meant by limiting things? So your reason goes to a point. Now beyond that point it is afraid to climb so, because you have to leave that vehicle. So it limits. This is the possibility of thought. Feelings go to a point, but beyond a point it limits. You can't feel in to that extent that you seem totally irrational. See, when you look at Indian tapasvis, the great sacrifices that Indian kings could do, the sages could do, Dadichi cannot be understood by the European thought. Here is a man who, after years of tapasya, gathering so much light, gathering so much of power within his body, easily gives it up. For the Devasur Sangram, for the Devas to win. This is something beyond a European mind. So it will it, it will believe in noble feelings, noble sentiments, being good-hearted, you know, humanizing things. But beyond that point, it will not go. So your interest, your selfish interest, the struggle for survival is still there. So even the spiritual pursuit will go to a point till uh, the time a rational religion can be formed that yes there is something uh, good about us good about you know there is a goodness in this world and we must live by that goodness it can go up to that ethical formula but it cannot shoot beyond so but in India the way harmony is created is very different so in India anything we take we stretch to an extreme and you go to that extreme where that Little activity touches the infinite. And that from that infinity you take a relook upon life. And then you begin to change life. So it's a very different approach. And he says even in the days when India, there were stages through which the decline took place. 
So in the days of the Vedas, of course, you have the direct spiritual experience, spiritual ages. Then when the intellectual age came, India has gone through that. So it did not abolish or cut away the spirit. It started looking at mind, reason, intellectual processes from that angle. It never lost sight of that. And then there was a third stage when we see the age of the Puranas and the Tantras, where it made a bold attempt to connect the infinite to life, even the most uh, vulnerable activities of life. And even there it dragged or brought in that sense of the infinite. Whereas with the European thought, it is primarily life which is important. And if something has apparently no utility to life, it is discarded, abstraction of thought. So it will take that much of the higher which can only replenish life as it understands it. But the Indian thought is, let us understand life first from the sense of the infinite. So it went on and on further and you know, the being behind this universe and beyond the being into the non-being, beyond the being and the non-being. European mind won't like to you know, enter into that abstraction because what is there beyond being and non-being? It's all just you know, abstract language. It doesn't make sense. How does it enrich us? How does it help my everyday life? But then Shurabindu says that yet in Indian thought, there was always this intimate connection. Life was never abandoned. Because one knew that there is not, that, you know, spirituality cannot flourish, flourish on an impoverished soil. So, when you see Indian thought from that perspective, you see, for example, the temple architecture. So you see some of the, especially the southern temples, you see them with crowded with images, which a European mind cannot understand. Its idea of temple is the cathedral, where you go inside, there is maximum one figure and the benches, you sit and pray. What has this whole, so many figures got to do? Or for example, when you go to Konark, you see all these figures all around, what has that got to do with spirituality? But it was a completely inclusive spirituality. Konark temple is a classic example where you have the entire universe represented and yet it is opening to the sun. So the entire thing is infinity coming down and you know taking up everything right up to the uh, the gods, the human, the animals and every type of creation and creatures into its entire fold. It's, it's the big chariot of the sun which is journeying across. So this was the conception of Indian uh, creative genius and it reflected in every sphere but then yes after maybe a time came when the Indian spirit probably you know we can put it this way that uh, you cannot keep on constantly creating you cannot keep on constantly climbing even a most athlete will so it took rest that's the time we see that the creative genius we still would go to Kalidas in every field India created in the field of science, 64 types of vidyas, Natya Shastra. For everything there was a Shastra. And every Shastra, very interestingly, had the backing of a Rishi. So it was never a spirituality disconnected with life. So he says that's a wrong way of understanding Indian spirituality, that it is disconnected with life, regards life as Maya. That is only one strain, which is primarily Buddhist, and later on Shankara's Advaita. But basically, but even in Buddhism, if you see Mahayana Buddhism, it, it's a very inclusive thought. So he says that's only one strain because India allowed extreme experimentation. But basically it included life, enriched life with the sense of the infinite. In every field, if we went, uh, and he gives example of, you know, of course later on he takes it at great length, even in science. So the stars were not just, you know, India could map the motion of the stars. It knew that earth is not flat. It could accurately predict the, you know, the conception of time was accurate to a, I mean, unimaginable degree. The distances between planets. At the same time, he brought into these planets another dimension altogether. So they were not just physical entities, they were subtle entities. So you have the Navagrahas, which are influencing human life. And these subtle entities had their own origin in something still greater. So always it derived itself from the infinite. So this is how uh, Shubhindu reveals that this uh, key of Indian thought uh, 
and this is something very beautiful of course everything is beautiful the indian mind saw that the invisible always surround the visible the supra sensible the sensible even as infinity always surrounds the finite now you see it requires a tremendous boldness and courage to do it you know even exploring the other worlds it's no less a courage in fact much greater courage then sending a trip to you know extraterrestrial galactic intergalactic spaces because that is something you can behold with your material eyes but to explore the inner worlds where you have no clue what you are going to hold on to what is going to befall you is it there or is it not there but they were not satisfied just with this material cage so they kept on pushing their consciousness further and further found a way and declared boldly one of the boldest declarations that we find in indian spirituality which is really not just uh, it is literally mind blowing and it is that is this he am i that effulgence there and this here is the same one of the greatest affirmations of life that i am no other than the divine in essence so this is how they went to the extreme limit see saw the myriad gods beyond man god beyond the gods and beyond god his own ineffable eternity she saw that there were ranges of life beyond our life the ranges of mind beyond a presentiment present mind and above these she saw the splendors of the spirit then with that calm audacity of her intuition which knew no fear or littleness and shrank from no act whether of spiritual or intellectual ethical or vital courage she declared that there was none of these things which man could not attain if he trained his will and knowledge he could conquer these ranges of mind become the spirit become a god become one with god become the ineffable brahman and with the logical practicality and sense of science and organized method which distinguished her mentality she set forth immediately to find out the way so we have this kind of a because of these ages of uh, inbuilt thought life you know aspiration in indian consciousness uh, the psychic tendencies are inbuilt within us one of the biggest gift we receive from taking birth in india is these psychic tendencies things like faith devotion surrender uh, nobody has to teach us fortunately so and then he says reminds us but this was not and could not be her whole mentality her entire spirit spirituality itself does not flourish on earth in the void even as our mountain tops do not rise like those of an enchantment of dream out of the clouds without a base i think this is the lesson so much needed for the present day india because still we are too much overawed by the other worldly tendency so sometime back there was a reference going on and still we believe in that tendency of the european mind or the so called rational mind it it says okay there is god there maybe god it's okay we don't deny that we don't affirm it either <laughs> but the rest of things you be rational so they gave a place to the sanyasi to the yogi who is okay is he is accepted as part of he should live outside the pale of society but for the rest there is reason so recently there was a kind of argument which was going around uh, that a particular yogi how he has uh, he is doing business so well he should not be doing it if he is really a yogi so yogis are not supposed to do business another was that you know yogis are not supposed to enter into politics not realizing that this is not how india thinks on the contrary india thinks that not only business and politics but battle that's how the entire gita is there and everyday business of life teaching education arts everywhere 
it is the yogi who must take over that's why when mother said that to be a good teacher you have to be a yogi to be a good psychologist you have to be a yogi to be a good healer you have to be a yogi so in every field of life one has to be a yogi so but this is what we must remember that in the heydays of india we are struck by her stupendous vitality the inexhaustible power of life and joy of life her almost unimaginable prolific creativeness for 3000 years at least it is indeed much longer she has been creating abundantly and incessantly lavishly with an inexhaustible many-sidedness republics and kingdoms and empires philosophies and cosmogonies and sciences and creeds and arts and poems and all kinds of monuments palaces and temples and public works communities and societies and religious orders laws and codes and rituals physical sciences psychic sciences systems of yoga systems of politics and administration arts spiritual arts worldly trades industries fine crafts the list is endless and in each item there is almost a plethora of activity she creates and creates and is not satisfied and is not tired she will not have an end of it seems hardly to need a space for rest a time for inertia and lying below and the reason is because it's in contact with the infinite so people don't realize the difference if we grow and evolve along the lines of the indian spirit which is to be in contact with the infinite there will be no limit whatsoever of what we can create but if we start adopting the western model or the chinese model or whatever other models we may it may look like a stupendous success for the moment but it is going to collapse after a point because it's finite so what do you do beyond a point look at you know what is happening to the western kind of democracy it doesn't understand now how to deal with the challenges which are coming up with this kind of uh, you know endless freedom you can have endless freedom if you have discovered the free infinite otherwise you will have those limits so this is one of the challenges and this is why and not only that india had expanded that time iran egypt as far as egypt iraq mesopotamia you go this side cambodia indonesia um, you know the marks are there this way she had expanded beyond the oceans you know that story about uh, in egypt about um, the river nile it seems the name itself came from the neel a color of vishnu and the god vishnu was one of the deities there and the kings were supposed to be representatives of vishnu who himself was a representative of sun or uh, you know aditya so if you see there was such a traveling of indian thought current all over the world whether it took you know it it ships there is a talk about ships which were traveling all over but then what happened after a point of time this otherworldliness and this moksha and the result was a waning of the ebbing of the impulse to create this life impulse this joy of life and with that came the decline so beyond a point people started you know is the law of creation that whatever doesn't progress begins to deteriorate so he speaks of all this that right from japan to iraq and egypt indian thought had sp- spread and then again he further says something still greater but this supreme spirituality and this prolific abundance of the energy and joy of life and creation do not make all the spirit of india has been in its past you know you can see it even today uh, leave aside you know look at just kama sutra i mean something which in the western world is just goes under the name of sex and you know they cannot understand anything beyond pornography and physical attraction look at you know so many positions and if you read it it's a shastra actually even how to make sexual life something uh, connected with something very beautiful and higher how can one uh, even imagine that in fields which are supposed to be completely a table for spiritual consciousness they had tried to bring in it everywhere and i'll give a latest example i think this side we all are so used to therefore we never understand uh, yesterday uh, 
we are walking on the beach road and i think some of us must have walked did you notice there was this competition of kolam is there every you know every twice a year it is there i think and there were how many entries some 300 600 entries 400 entries and each design in its own way expressive of something and this is they were not made by some extraordinary artist they were common people who had just made and look at the creativity it's just unimaginable no two no two columns were repeating themselves isn't that the sign that there is this thing coming up if you were to do this in the western world you have to allocate a space to it in a certain reason must you know put a kind of order and hedge around but it was so wonderful to see it almost contaminous with life you are walking across and you are seeing all these spray of columns even if you see the designs on the walls of pondicherry if you look at the advertisements in indian uh, advertising industry you will see a touch of the spirit which is completely missing i mean i have seen i have tried to look something very beautiful coming in the you know western world on by way of advertisement but what you find is pleasure objects you know who is advertising why because the idea that sensationalism and pleasure will buy you will see here a line here a line there some touch of the spirit suddenly entering through the doors of you know uh, even a coca cola <laughs> so which is amazing this is what india has been it is not a confused splendor of tropical vegetation under heavens of a pure sapphire infinity it is only to eyes unaccustomed to such wealth that there seems to be a confusion in this crowding of space with rich forms of life a luxurious disorder of excess or a wanton lack of measure clear balance and design this is how many of us understand india when you come to india oh, what is this suddenly you will see a building structure suddenly you will see a kind of hut meant here and in the kind many people find it they just can't understand that you know because you are used to symmetrical high rise buildings in manhattan <laughs> so that's your idea but that's not what india is india offers this beauty and variety and you know it's at least i find it very rich very rich that the sound of the milkman and you know the the crows the birds and the temple gong <laughs> all these things are mixed together and if you are not accustomed to it you may feel it's a confusion but if you are accustomed to it you understand that behind all this there is a tremendous it's like an awakening of um, i used to feel it's an awakening of energy in so many ways it's not just the temple gong it's also the crow it's the sparrow and it's the milkman and all around you will see the cycle fellow doing tong tong uh, you know there is such a kind of awakening so he says that somebody who is not accustomed he will feel that this excess is nothing but confusion he would prefer very nice symmetrical <laughs> buildings sometimes same color and it looks so boring there are places where they have done this you know <laughs> <laughs> not for the indian taste it loves variety and look at just the dishes forget everything just look at the dishes and you will see what variety one particular dish will be made in so many ways look at dresses dhoti can be worn in 70 ways who can imagine that just a piece of cloth can be worn in 70 ways <laughs> original research ha huh? this i have not read anywhere but i heard and i learned a few just imagine so what kind of a stupendous vitality and creation so this is how the indian spirit worked and so second note was not just spirituality as something very ineffable there it went into the ultimate but here also in life it created in every aspect of life it created forms to embody that spirit but it knew that forms are limited and temporal yet it wanted to express for the joy of expression and then he says for the third power of the ancient indian spirit was a strong intellectuality at once austere and rich robust and minute and that's what we see in some of these debates where you have between mandan mishra and you know the famous one astavakra and others yagnwalkin this this was 
part of an Indian ethos. It was not like a, a mute spirituality, a dumb spirituality where you don't speak, you don't enrich yourself. You do it. By all means, there is a space for that. Only Indian mind never confused intellectuality for spirituality. But it allowed the intellectual expression and statement. Of, that's why you have such metaphysical system. And in every system, it went to the extreme. And Shubhendu calls it bold. For instance, when it took uh, to exploring, there are two kinds of materialism. One is spiritual materialism. And the other is materialistic materialism. Now, when it went to materialistic materialism, it went to an extreme. It didn't, uh, you know, it was not being hypocritical by saying you should follow some ideals and, you know, there is nothing but matter, material life, but well, well, you should be a good guy. It didn't say that. <laughs> then it went to a charvak that, you know, enjoy life, take loan, never, re- <laughs> never repay it. <laughs> Just imagine, people were shocked, but look at the man. <laughs> he, he said, okay, if it is matter, go to the last limit. Then why do you want to be good? Why do you want to be ethical? You take loan, enjoy life and don't bother about repaying because there is no afterlife. Now, you know, that's another extreme where he took, you know, the whole thing. So that is how Indian thought took everything. That's why when you look at the Indian gods, you will see this. Like the, now, of course, in the European world, there are no gods left. They are chased away. <laughs> <laughs> but in India, they have all taken shelter. So, in India, you look at the gods. You have extreme examples. This Krishna, who is infinite, literally in motion, wherever. He is dancing, he is playing the flute. He is, you know, as a playmate, he is a friend, he is a lover. He is also a warrior. He is the giver of the Gita. Everywhere, Krishna seems to be there in a new mode, a new mood. And look at Shiva. So Shiva goes to the barest minimum. I think that Brakshala is a concession he's, you know, that he wears. Okay. And rides on the bull and lives in the mountains. Extreme examples. And in that we found, uh, you know, our own source of inspiration. Rama. So Mr. Archer later on he will say, he could not understand Rama and Sita. He says, they are too extreme to be true. And at the same time, Mr. Archer condemns Indian thought with a lack of morality because he couldn't understand. On one side you have Ajanta and Alura. On the other side you have Rama and Sita. So anybody who meets this wonderful, stupendous um, infinity called India, it is literally infinity in a small piece of land. So people often compare things with land mass. You cannot compare India with a land mass. It's like a Yagyavedi which is invoking the infinite. So here he says that even the impulse for order and arrangement, but an order founded upon a seeking for the inner law and truth of things and having in view always the possibility of consentious practice. India has been preeminently the land of the Dharma and the Shastra. So India had its own social order. It was not a breed. On one side it regarded all beings as equal. Look at Ramayana. is a classical example. He is embracing the uh, you know, on one side the hunter, on the other side the hunted, both. He is doing the shradh for that vulture. That, you know, you were a friend to my father, so I must do the shradh for you. Rama is doing that. He is going to Shabri, the fallen, the outcast, and eating out of her hands what has been tasted by her. You look at life of Rama, one of the earliest epics. You see all this variety of human beings been carried by him as one. But on the other hand, Rama also believes or takes into account the order of society which is based on the spiritual evolution. So we have the story of Shambhuk. And people can't understand why he gets Shambhuk. Is it just because he is a Dalit? <laughs> no. Because in India, we believed in Adhikar Bhed. The essence is one. But there is an ascending order of humanity. Whereas if you see the Western order, it's a very different, it's like all are one and therefore you accept everybody as one. And now, only thing is the differences are in professions. But there is an inner hierarchy through which the soul evolves was something they completely missed. So in India, both these truths were there. In a sense, all are one and we embrace everyone. But now, this is where Shivinda also cautions 
that when this became very rigid, when we lost that inner spirit, that's the time we fell. For instance, we made caste system something very rigid. And therefore it had to be broken aside. But the inner truth, that order of life, which was governed by something deeper, that is something always there. India always preserved it. So, I don't know, I don't feel like, you know, going further, but uh, still, I'll read one more passage. This is something to be just read and enjoyed. So he is basically uh, answering to this charge that, okay, Indian spirituality is there, but it's too much in the air. It's all about abstraction. What has it got to do with life? Because European lays a lot of stress on life. But what is life for it is nothing but outward life. But for Indian, the life is inner, outer, inner and an inmost life. It includes the lower. It doesn't abandon it. There is a lower, there is a higher, still higher and a highest form of life. The divine life. It doesn't abandon any of it but sees it as, a, as an entire cosmogony. So, thus an ingrained and dominant spirituality, an inexhaustible vital creativeness and gust of life and mediating between them a powerful, penetrating and scrupulous intelligence combined of the rational, ethical and aesthetic mind, each at a high intensity of action, created the harmony of the ancient Indian culture. Without, indeed without this opulent vitality and opulent intellectuality, India could never have done so much as she did with her spiritual tendencies. It is a great error to suppose that spirituality flourishes best in an impoverished soil and the life half-killed and the intellect discouraged and intimidated. The spirituality that so flourishes is something morbid, hectic, and exposed to perilous reactions. This is what you see happened in the, what today we call as the Abrahamic religions. That when it began to, not in, there also you see some nice, beautiful, there was an effort, but an effort which failed halfway through. And then suddenly you see, for instance, the, the Mohammedan experiment. What happened in that? You ban music, you ban art, you ban uh, beauty, you ban poetry, you know, Originally, ghazals and all, they all break away, you know. The Shias, the <laughs> not regarded as being truly the true Muslims. If you leave that aside, everything which could be beautiful, science you must follow, that earth is flat, otherwise you are being a heretic. So all this led to a decay and decomposition. Whereas in India, we had this stupendous vitality. And he says that all this led to a many-sided, constant and many-sided fruition. So he speaks about the three ages and with which we will stop. The note of spirituality is dominant, initial, constant, always recurrent. It is the support of all the rest. Never there was an age in India when spirituality was never there. It is so true that even in the darkest ages, something, the last age of spiritual uh, outburst is actually the Vaishnava poetry. It includes the sensuous and aesthetic being. The last age, the Puranas, the Tantras, even during the decline. The first age of India's greatness was a spiritual age when she shot passionately for the truth of existence through the intuitive mind and through an inner experience and interpretation both of the psychic and the physical existence. Then, therefore, the second long epoch of India's greatness was an age of the intellect, the ethical sense, the dynamic will in action, enlightened to formulate and govern life in the luster of spiritual truth. So this was the age of dharma. So after the age of the spirit, the age of the dharma. After the Vedas and Upanishads, the heroic centuries of action and social formation, typal construction and thought and philosophy, the classical age of Sanskrit. And then we see that finally, 
the Puranas, the Tantric system, the religions of Bhakti, later Vaishnavism, the last fine flower of the Indian spirit was in its essence the taking up of the aesthetic, emotional and sensuous being into the service of the spiritual. It completed the curve of the cycle. The evening of decline which followed the completion of the curve was prepared by three movements of retrogression. This is important for us to remember so that we don't do the same mistake. First, there is comparatively a sinking of that superabundant vital energy and a fading of the joy of life and the joy of creation. It's so important. At one place, Shirvita says this in his evening talks. The joy of life is important. Now, this is different from Zudi Vibre where you are bubbling. It's not about that bubbly thing. But the joy of life where you want to create something new, discover something which is challenging, take up challenge. This is the joy of life. To create abundantly. Not that bubbly kind of, you know, just cracking jokes. And it's not speaking of that. But the joy of life, it takes joy in all that is uh, in the world and gives its own output. Even in the decline, this energy is still something splendid and extraordinary. And only for a very brief period sinks nearest to a complete torpor. Secondly, there is a rapid cessation of the old free intellectual activity, a slumber of the scientific and the critical mind as well as the creative intuition. What remains becomes more and more a repetition of ill-understood fragments of past knowledge. So now this critical mind is not about reinterpreting the Shastras. That's okay. That's one part of it. But the critical mind should be able to look at things and bring out new truths. For instance, in the field of medicine, it should be able to look past the forms and bring out new hidden aspects and integrate it with our mainstream medicine. So medicine in India should be different from medicine in Europe. Psychology in India should be different from the way it is practiced in Europe. Somebody was very shocked the other day. He, this man came, he is a Spanish man, nice man, open to you know what India has to offer and came all the way, touched by Shurvinda and the mother's writing. So he was interacting with some of the psychology students coming from typical Indian places and he asked one of them, so, have you read the Gita? Uh, no, I don't find it interesting. So, it was a little embarrassing moment for me. <laughs> but so, I said, basically, we don't teach the Gita in, um, you know, psychology classes. And then I added, but when my students used to ask me, where should we read psychology from? I used to say two books. One was the Gita and the second was Mahabharata. I used to say, if you read these two books, you will understand all about human psychology. But throughout the windows, all this Western thought of, you know, this kind of analytical, psychoanalytical thought, it's rubbish compared. I mean, literally I'm saying, strong word, nonsense when you compare it with that kind of vast synthetic vision of human types, personalities. Because these still things in terms of the personality disorders as has been taught classically in the Western paradigm. We don't understand it like that. We saw a whole hierarchy from the Pisachik to Nasurik and Rakshasik and Pashvik and Manvi to Devik to Divya. All that entire hierarchy. And it was based on the sound principle of the diminution of the spiritual energy to its ultimate efflorescence. We saw in it a movement, evolutionary progression, not just surface traits. Because surface traits come from something deeper. And therefore we can manipulate much better. I mean, it's much easier. But we, we don't have the courage. We still try to, you know, uh, explain the Gita, even those who are trying to do it, in terms of, you know, uh, a teacher, a student, how he makes sure that Arjuna is propped up and made to fight. That's all. So, so, uh, so this went away in, in that age. And there was a petrification of mind and life in the relics of the forms which a great intellectual past had created. So finally what happened was that while the past was there, it broke down and finally the process which has led up to the Renaissance, now inevitable, may be analyzed historically and logically into three steps by which a transition is being managed. A complex breaking, reshaping and new building. 
with the final result yet distant in prospect. So Indian Renaissance will not be just going back to the past form. If we do that, then we are missing the bus to the or the boat to the future. We have to take that spirit, rediscover it and give it a new form. That is what European con- you know, contact has challenged us. So when European contact took place, there were three phases. One was where everything European was good because it was mesmerizing. Oh, such marvelous things. And why this happened? Because at a point of time, we stopped creating. So we could not see that kind of empire, that kind of grandeur, that kind of sublimity, which we had read. Mahabharata, you read about that opulence, Dwarka, but in reality, on ground, we saw the European man walking with his cannons and with his, you know, uh, uh, switches and electricity. And so it was too much for Indian mind to take and it, was, it went overboard and just accepted everything European. And then came the phase when European thought started challenging Indian thought. That is the time when the sleeping spirit began to wake up because, you know, humiliating a whole civilization. So people started waking up and discovering themselves, but still they gave an anglicized version of the Indian thought. No, no, we also had reason. We also had critical thinking, so it was still that. And even when we brought in mysticism, it was with a touch of the, uh, you know, English mystic mysticism. And classic example was again, Bankim Chandra and Rabindranath Tagore. If you read Gitanjali, you will feel the mystic sense of, <laughs> of the Western mystic, uh, you know, idealism. That is the fervor. And then the third phase was when Indians took it into themselves, no, we'll state what is in our real spirit. And its epitome was Swami Vivekananda, where he declared very boldly that I do come from a place where, you know, we are taught that um, we are not fallen beings, but divine nature. So this was the steps of the rediscovery of the Indian spirit. And then of course now, we have to go along further along those lines. And he. So, the most important thing is that he says one thing seems at any rate certain that the motive, spiritual motive, will be in the future of India as in our past, the real originative and dominating strain. By spirituality, we do not mean a remote metaphysical mind or the tendency to dream rather than to act. That was not the great India of old in her splendid days of vigour. Whatever certain European critics or interpreters of her culture may say, and it will not be the India of the future. So very clearly he says that, that Indians must uh, start creating and not just past forms were beautiful, but something still more beautiful is to come. Another mantra he gives is, India can best develop herself and serve humanity by being herself and following the law of her own nature. This does not mean, as some narrowly and blindly suppose, the rejection of everything new that comes to us in the stream of time or happens to have been first developed or powerfully expressed by the West. So this being ourselves is in the spirit and the motive and the intent. But it doesn't mean we start rejecting, no, we will, uh, Swadeshi does not mean that I will not wear a, you know, western dress or western form of dress. That would be absurd. But we'll give it our own coloring, our own beauty, our own aesthetics, which is what you actually see. You look at the dresses, western dresses which are manufactured in India and look at the same dresses outside and you will see the same difference. Rich in detail you will find it here. And you'll find there nice material, everything. Most of it is of course imported. But but uh, fairly monotonous. The choices are very simple to make. But here, you see, you go to one cloth store and you'll be lost. Because you see it, it is an Indianized version of uh, things. And lastly, he says, now this, the last is last. <laughs> okay. If the majority of Indians had indeed made the whole of their lives religion, because this was another chart that we had too much into religion. Shabindra says, perhaps there is excess of it. Yes, agreed. 
But when did we fall? When we lost that truth. So he says very interestingly, if the majority of Indians had indeed made the whole of their lives religion in the true sense of the word, we should not be where we are now. Of course, this religion is not about, you know, just going to a temple and praying. But this religion, its core, the sense of contact with the divine, the infinite, it was because their public life became most irreligious, egoistic, self-seeking, materialistic that they fell. We see this today also. Number one problem of India is selfishness. So it's not religious doesn't mean that going to a temple and doing the prayer and then coming out and completely throwing out of the window all the great truths. Dharma is important. That on one side we deviated too much into an excessive religiosity, that is to say an excessive externalism of ceremony, rule, routine, mechanical worship, on the other into a two-world-shunning asceticism which drew away the best minds who were thus lost to society, instead of standing like the ancient rishis as its spiritual support and its illuminating life-givers. But the root of the matter was the dwindling of the spiritual impulse in its generality and broadness, the decline of intellectual activity and freedom, the waning of great ideals, the loss of the gust of life. So we'll stop here. Shubhendra has laid down the broad lines along which India would rise, keeping its spirit intact but giving new forms and many a forms through our creative genius, integrating all that life has brought into its lap, not shunning, not discarding, but taking it up, not like those people who say, we don't use the internet, we don't use the lamp. In my days, we didn't have electricity. That is outrightly foolish. There is internet, there is electricity. Just because it happened to be there, <laughs> we use all of that and give it a new understanding and a new usefulness than we see today.